The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Our world today seems to be shell-shocked, reeling from one incident to another as a result of the sheer insanity of our times. My parents of blessed memory haven't been gone from this earth for very long, yet if they came back today, they would hardly be able to recognize and comprehend the current state of our world. Morality has backslidden that badly in just a decade or so. Many of our leaders exhibit an inability to think rationally. Judges are decreeing decisions that sometimes baffle common sense. At the same time, we see pockets of spiritual revival to counteract the madness. This dichotomy of activity, light versus darkness, points to the fact that we're living in a peculiar period of grace. And I'm happy to tell you that the door of opportunity to receive the Savior is still open. And yet at the same time, we're also experiencing foretastes of the end times prophesied in the New Testament and described in two simple words, strong delusion. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. God didn't create us to be puppets or robots. So when we insist on going our own rebellious way, he gives us free will and withdraws his restraint and protection. He'll even permit people to demonstrate that they didn't love the truth, but the consequences will always be terrible. On a number of issues that the West in particular is grappling with, gender identity confusion, same-sex marriage, gender-neutral toilets, and so forth. The truth is, there's a battle being waged for the hearts and minds of whole populations in ways that we've not encountered in this generation. A friend only today posted a well-expressed comment on my Facebook concerning gender identity confusion. He's a Nigerian pastor who's also an American citizen. He wrote that at the heart of many of these hot-button issues, it seems to me to be not so much about rights as much as a redefinition of the age-old distinction between a man and a woman. Once a society adopts this radical change, all of biblical morality becomes open to spiritual, political, judicial, and legislative revision. America in particular, thanks to an ever-pervasive liberal media machine and an activist administration, seems to be very well on its way to affecting this transition. But I want to read for you a very relevant passage from the New Testament. This is how the Apostle Paul described the last days. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin with verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. He's speaking here of the Antichrist 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that's worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So you see, this clearly teaches that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining him, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. I want to repeat verse 10 for emphasis. Paul said the coming of the man of sin, the Antichrist, will use every kind of evil deception to fool those who are on their way to destruction. Why? Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. And then Paul adds a powerful statement. For this cause, for this reason, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. This phrase found in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, God shall send them strong delusion, keeps coming to my mind when I consider the daily news because the depths of deception are increasingly shocking and irrational. The level of deception is indeed what I would describe as a strong delusion. I was fascinated to delve into the literal meaning of the phrase, God shall send them strong delusion. In Greek, strong delusion is energy of deceit. Wow, that really preaches. The energy of deceit. It's a deception that's so strong that it's energized. And the phrase strong delusion is actually a Hebraism in the text, meaning strong energetic deceit. In Greek, the word even looks like energy, and it's the same word from which we get the English word energy. Apparently, the deceptions of the last days will have an extra operative power to draw people away from the truth because they love not the truth in the first place. And for this cause, Paul says, God will allow a judicial, powerful deception to ensnare them, strong delusion, because they didn't care or investigate whether things were true or not. There'll be a strong working of error in their hearts. Well, it's amazing nowadays how often a commentator will say a politician or a religious leader seems deluded. This prophesied strong delusion becomes a punishment for sins because in their hearts they love and prefer error more than they love and prefer truth. This is their big sin. They didn't cherish the truth and therefore they couldn't believe it. They're pleased and satisfied to follow after false notions and vain philosophies. 
And so God abandons them to themselves and to their own folly. These prophecies have, in a great measure, already come to pass and confirm the truth of the scriptures. In light of all this, I want to call attention to a recent article by Michael Snyder from his blog, End of the American Dream. The headline of his blog was, 10 Stunning Parallels Between the United States and Nazi Germany. Number one on his list is human experimentation. The fact that the Nazis conducted scientific experiments on their prisoners has been heavily documented. But part of the end time scenario is the dehumanization of people, namely the experimentations on embryos, the abortion culture in general, as well as the push for euthanasia and eugenics. Eugenics is a set of beliefs and practices that aims at improving the genetic quality of the human population through experimentation, sterilizations, assisted reproductive technology, and so forth. The idea of eugenics is to produce better human beings and to decrease the birth of what's perceived to be inferior human beings. Pro-life advocates are outraged that scientists would specifically create unique human beings just to use as experiments, only later to destroy their embryonic life in the rubbish bin, just for the sake of research. There are now reports of lab experiments to mix human with animal DNA. Concerning Planned Parenthood's evidently selling of baby body parts and other disturbing trends of gender and pagan mutilation of various body parts, Snyder wrote, What we're doing is so evil that it's hard to put into words, and yet most Americans have become to accept this kind of sick behavior as perfectly normal. The Nazis legalize abortion in Germany, and they encourage so-called undesirable elements of the population to indulge in murder by abortion. It turns out that Adolf Hitler was actually a huge fan of Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood. And Hitler adopted many of her philosophies. Unbelievably to me, Sanger once said that the most merciful thing a family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Snyder in his blog compared Sanger's statement to the following quote from Hitler's book, Mein Kampf. The demand that defective people be prevented from propagating equally defective offspring represents the most humane act of mankind. Unbelievable. Of the parallels between Nazi Germany and today's Western nations is the, is the tendency to reject the freedoms of democracy and capitalism in favor of socialism and high taxes that choke out the free marketplace of ideas. Many carrots on a stick offer free handouts, but somebody always has to pay for these social benefits. The obvious damage socialism has done to nations is clearly visible in places such as Venezuela, North Korea, and dozens of other failed regimes throughout the world. But ignorant and lazy young Westerners are demanding socialism, and they're very aggressive because they want free stuff 
for nothing. The Nazis were also obsessed with taking guns away from the population. When they were being rounded up, the Jews could have defended themselves if they had only had firearms. The Nazi secret police, the Gestapo, were notorious for their brutal tactics and spying on everybody. Unfortunately, we're moving in the same direction with government snooping and monitoring of our emails and every aspect of our lives. To my sorrow, because in my opinion it's true, Snyder wrote in his blog, to say that we have become an evil nation is a gigantic understatement. But perhaps the greatest parallel between Nazi Germany and our Western nations is the increased ban on Christianity in schools, public places, and workplaces. I'm going to read a statement that Snyder quoted from a book with the title, The Swastika Against the Cross, The Nazi War on Christianity. In the book, a Nazi tract distributed in 1941 was cited, and the tract eerily sounds just like the propaganda of today's socialists, liberals, and atheists. The tract described the life cycle that was envisioned for Nazi German youth. Quote, With parties and gifts, the youth will be led painlessly from one faith to the other and will grow up without ever having heard of the Sermon of the Mount or the Golden Rule, to say nothing of the Ten Commandments. The education of the youth is to be confined primarily by the teacher and the officer and the leaders of the party. The priests will die out, and to their places will step the leaders, not deputies of God, but anyway, the best Germans. And how shall we train our children? Thus, as though they had never heard of Christianity. Well, that sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? I shudder to think what will happen if our Western nations don't wake up while there's still time for us to repent and to return to God. Have we passed the point of no return? Will God abandon us to our enemies to punish and whip us with their weapons of mass destruction? May God have mercy on us. I'm so grateful that evangelist Franklin Graham continues to visit every state capital to pray specifically for revival and to repent according to 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, God says, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Another recent blog by the same author described the cloud of insanity that has descended upon America in much of the Western world. I agree with his assessment. From our top leaders on down, people are engaged in incredibly self-destructive behavior. Extremely irrational decisions are being forced, such as the emphasis upon transgender bathrooms, while much more ominous and dangerous issues hang over our heads like the proverbial Damocles sword. Increasingly, people are being given over to a depraved mind by engaging in intimate relationships involving more than two people in so-called sex roulette parties. The sex roulette parties are like a death wish because everyone engages in unprotected sex with others in a room without knowing the identity of which person is HIV positive. 
Well, Psalm 11.3 asks a very relevant question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The widespread deterioration in good sound judgment that we're witnessing day by day is indeed a process of decay that seems to be having an exponential effect. The principles of morality and marriage between a man and a woman are the foundation of society. The psalmist in Psalm 11.3 paints a picture for us of a house or a building shattered by an earthquake. The foundations are destroyed, and so it's impossible to find safety and shelter in such a shattered edifice. The word foundations in this verse refers to those things on which society rests or by which social order is sustained, held up. Foundations are the great principles of truth and righteousness that uphold society, just as the foundations uphold a building. When truth is no longer respected, when justice is no longer practiced, when fraud and violence have replaced honesty, true character, and honor, when error prevails, the foundations are destroyed. However, as bad as it looks, thank God, there are certain spiritual foundations that can never be removed. The most obvious foundation is this book, the Bible. God's Word is forever seated in the heavens, far above all possibilities of revision or destruction. The Bible declares that God was in the Messiah, reconciling the world unto Himself. The Lord's blood atonement, whereby we are forgiven, the blessed hope of eternal life with the Lord, the blessed hope of His soon return, God's covenants with the church and with Israel. These foundations can never disappear, no matter how much the forces of darkness try to remove God and the Ten Commandments from public spheres. The Lord's throne, His authority, is secure in heaven. Everything He has decreed for the last days will come to pass right on schedule. Israel will be redeemed and saved, and the final harvest of souls will be reaped. Revival can't be denied. In the meantime, those of us who still love God with all of our hearts are believing for revival and for strong, godly leaders to emerge, like King David of old, to challenge the Goliaths of this present world system. The temporary problem is that people today are paralyzed with fears and indifference just as the army of Israel was paralyzed in the days of Goliath. Although Israel's army went out daily to meet the enemy, and they encamped opposite to the enemy, they didn't fight and engage the enemy as they'd done so successfully in the past. Israel's army was paralyzed with fear, especially at the appearance of the big mouth and giant named Goliath. A similar fear or paralysis seems to have pervaded Christian communities in the presence of enemies who were proud and boastful and defiant, contemptuous, and increasingly confident of their victory over God in the Bible. Fear is often the result of not rising to the challenge to believe God. Fear prevents faith and only emboldens our enemies who then heap more and more reproach upon us. Jesus asked, how is it that you don't have faith? And we must learn that the spirit of fear can be expelled only by the spirit of faith. It's important to believe God's promises and to make a regular habit of practicing the presence of God 
So we call forth fresh Davids, fresh champions of truth and righteousness. God's not far off. He's near. The Lord has promised and pledged himself to defend the right and always to pour out his spirit in revival. When we meet his requirements of praying, humbling ourselves, seeking his face, and turning from our wicked ways to repent. We're responsible to anticipate God's miracles and deliverances. This is our life of faith. What God has promised, he will certainly perform. Our times call for genuine moral courage. David wasn't intimidated at all by Goliath. He wasn't intimidated by his size, by his armor, or by his threats. This is because David knew God and he knew the power of his name. Daniel 11.32 declares that those who know God will be strong and do exploits. So under a powerful anointing, David challenged Goliath. He said, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David was confident in the retribution of God. He knew that God rains down snares upon the wicked who defy him and who defy his plans and purposes. This is faith in action. At that point, confronting Goliath, you don't see David on his knees praying because he was already prayed up. There are times when prayer stops and action begins. God once said to Moses, Why are you crying to me? Speak to the children of Israel to go forward. It was time to move. And when you're prayed and done all, then you can move forward in the spirit of prayer. There's a protection that accompanies true God-inspired faith. I've been protected in many potentially dangerous places when God sent me on missions on behalf of the Lord of the harvest. When it's genuine and from the Lord and not presumption, faith carries with it a certain immunity from danger. Well, bystanders at the duel between David and Goliath undoubtedly thought that it looked pretty hopeless for David. Yet, who won? The giant was nine feet tall, but he was killed. And the boy became a national hero by a slingshot. Hallelujah. Likewise, Daniel's three friends who were thrown in the fiery furnace were protected by their faith. But those who receive not the love of the truth can't expect to be protected. They'll be uncovered and exposed to every trick of the powers of darkness because they prefer error and delusion to the simple gospel truths that would save their souls. Well, at the beginning of the program, I pointed out a phrase found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, God shall send them strong delusion. The current level of deception in Western society is indeed what I would describe as strong delusion. And I was fascinated to learn the literal meaning of the phrase, God will send strong delusion. In Greek, strong delusion is energy of deceit. This is a warning that deception in the last days will be particularly powerful, so strong that it's energized. Apparently, the deceptions in the last days will have an extra powerful energy to draw people away from the truth because they didn't love the truth in the first place. And for this cause, Paul says, God will allow a judicial, powerful deceit to befall them, strong delusion to believe a lie because they didn't care whether things were true or not. 
Let's purpose to love truth no matter how much it hurts. Let's petition the Lord to grant us the gift of discernment, which is one of the most needful gifts of the Holy Spirit for the last days. The gift of the discerning of spirits is the power to be able to distinguish clearly between the workings of the Holy Spirit and the activities of evil and misleading spirits. It's amazing to me how much discernment is lacking in the churches and is lacking in what passes sometimes for revival. But on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter preached to the people, be saved from this corrupt generation. How may we be saved from this corrupt generation full of delusion? The method is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. The Bible says that if you will believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. You're made right with God. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The Bible also instructs us to repent and to be baptized, every one of us, in the name of Jesus for the remission of our sins. And then the promise is that we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I thank God for touching you right now with the gospel of truth and forgiveness, freely offered in the name of Jesus, no matter what is your ethnic or religious background. Jesus died for everybody, everywhere, and that includes you and me. Well, before we end, I want to thank those of you watching who have helped to make possible our recent ministry outreach to the nation of India. Your support of the Jerusalem Channel has allowed us to take the gospel into some of the more remote parts of the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh. India and Israel have been developing closer economic, political, and humanitarian ties. And we had the opportunity to spend a week in India during Israel's 68th Independence Day celebrations. Most Indian Christians are hungry to know more about the Hebraic roots of their faith. In one day alone, we spoke in six churches during a marathon 11-hour drive through the countryside while temperatures rose as high as 40 degrees. Our main objective was to bring together 500 pastors for a full day of teaching at what we call our Bible Congress. It's always a blessing that we can follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Thomas to share the good news in this amazing nation of India. It's only through your support of the Jerusalem Channel that we can fulfill Acts 1-8, first in Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth. Of course, we'd like to stay in touch with you, and that's possible through social media and also by visiting our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our free ministry newsletter, Exploits. And at our website, you can also learn details about our next exciting prayer convocation in the Holy Land. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dard. Shalom. <music>